This is an ABC podcast. Well, that was a fun election, wasn't it? Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. This is the minefield. I should point out when I before you write letters alleging political bias on the ABC, when I say fun, what I mean, I think, is cephalogically fascinating. <laughs> don't don't you think, Scott? Fun was fine with me. <laughs> well, you know, I just think that people might hear that and assume that it's to do with cheering on a certain outcome, oh, no. which is not at all what I mean. No, no of course not. And, and to be fair, I thought it was going to be a cephalogically fascinating election going mm-hmm. in anyway, you know, because of the teal independence yep. and what that, the havoc that could wreak and indeed in the end wrought. Hmm. Can I just say, Waleed? Yeah. If we hadn't known one another for a decade and we hadn't been doing this for, what, seven years, just hearing you use the two tenses of reek and rot, including <laughs> using reek with the proper qualification might, and then a, without skipping a beat, moving to the past tense. You know, I, I would hear that and say, you know what? You know what my greatest ambition in life is? I want to do a show with this guy. You had me at reek. Let me just put it that <laughs> I thought I had you at rot. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Or I confirmed it at rot. Anyway, it wasn't just about the teal independence. There's so many things went on. Uh, mm. In the election, the emergence, emergence is the wrong word, but the the movement to the next phase or next stage for the Greens mm. was fascinating. In Brisbane, um, in Brisbane of all places. Extraordinary. Yeah. Well, actually Which, not. By the way, the Greens were talking up beforehand. It's, yeah, it wasn't right. a surprise to them. No. That's, that's certainly true. Anyway, th- there are just so many things that I think bear thinking and talking about for what they reveal. And I'm trying to think. Reveal about what is mm. the question I'm grappling with. Because mm. you could say they reveal things about Australian society or the evolution of Australian politics. Do they reveal things about the nature of our electoral system? Do they reveal things about our future? I think they probably do. Mm. I've got half a mind to write like a an essay or some kind of analysis that begins with announcing the results of the 2043 election. Because it feels like one of those elections, doesn't it? Where, you know, in a campaign that seemed to promise so little, and maybe this is the reason for it, but in a campaign that seemed to promise so little as far as ideas are concerned, I think this, we'll look back on this as the watershed where Australian politics structurally just changed forever. Hmm. So that's my sort of opening gambit. I don't know if I will get to fulfil or colour in those thoughts as the show goes through. I do want to hand over to you, though, because we should let our listeners know that we were planning on doing this show before the election, not about the election result, but about sort of the way that political debate seems to be going, certainly in Australia, but even overseas, and the kinds of politics that seems to be allowed in Hmm. or seems to be capable of being successful. And then we waited till after the election. I'm kind of glad we did. So which direction do you want to take this in? Well, I'll just say that what we wanted to talk about, I mean, we always find a way of shoehorning whatever it is we really want to talk about into whatever it is we're talking about. My my mum, God bless her, she used to tell me this story about her seventh grade U.S. history exam. And she had done all of this work on Thomas Jefferson, believing that he was going to be the particular question 
that was going to be asked, a particular president who was going to be focused on. And then the question ended up being about Abraham Lincoln instead. And she said, I still remember the first sentence I wrote. She said, Abraham Lincoln was a president. So was Thomas Jefferson. Let me tell you about Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> I've actually always, I've always quite liked that. So it's, it's kind of like one of, the, one of the tricks with the minefield. Whatever it is we want to talk about, we're going to find some way of talking about it. That's kind of the case here, but I don't think it's going to be fully the case. I think there are some broader implications about what representative politics can accommodate and what it can't. And those really crucial moments where things that maybe are not given sufficient regard by the processes and within the restrictions of representative politics, the particular appeal that representative politics must make, uh, what happens when those restrictions come up against seismic shifts that are taking place within culture? Or what happens when the necessarily compromising nature of representative politics or even the centrist, the necessarily centrist predilections, dynamics of, of representative politics, what happens when that comes up against uncompromising moral claims that are taking certain portions of a democratic culture in its grip? Uh, I think there's some really interesting things that we might flesh out a little bit later. Well, Ada, I'm going to go against you, though, on what this meant, on the implications of the 2022 election. I haven't even said what they were. Well, you said that they were seismic. Yeah. That this is, we're going to look back on this is the moment when something fundamental about Australian politics might have changed. Do you want me to explain what I mean? Yeah, please, please do, because I think I want to go in a different direction. Okay. All I mean by that is a couple of things. One, on the coalition side, the coalition has now for a few decades at the very least, and probably since its inception, hmm. been built on a contradiction philosophically. So yep. there have been that sort of liberal worldview that Menzies actually put at the centre of the party, saying it was actually not a conservative party, it's a liberal party. Mm. And then the conservative tradition, I think John Howard described it as being a party that is the custodian of these two great traditions of Mill and of Burke. Mm. I'm not sure that Burke has actually been around very much in the party. No, it's true. Right? <laughs> it's true. I think it's a version of conservatism that isn't terribly Burkean. Mm. But nonetheless, these things are pushing in opposite directions. And I think we might have finally reached the point where they broke. Mm and that the voters decided that it had broken, that this was no longer a broad church so much as a new denomination that had to be established. So I think that's one point. But second to that, and this is perhaps the broader point, we might, I'm trying to figure out how, with how much confidence I should say this, the prudent thing would be to say it with no confidence whatsoever, but the entertaining thing would be to say it with a great deal of confidence. So I'll, I'll go somewhere in the middle. We might be looking at our last ever minority government, a majority government. Mm. And I wouldn't at all be surprised if before this Labor government's time is up, it has ended up as a coalition government with the Greens. I mean, properly, like with, you know, a Green minister or two. Because we're seeing a, a realignment of the tectonic plates of the way that Australian politics works. Progressive politics is now wealthy politics and it's, it's high education politics, an alignment we've seen in the United States and perhaps in the UK as well, mm -hmm. um, or a realignment. Labor suffered swings against it in just about all of its safe seats, certainly in Melbourne, which says that the battle for the suburbs is far from one. Mm. The coalition got swings to it in 
mortgage stress seats mm-hmm. and it got swings to it, apart from in Queensland, in the most disadvantaged seats. In other words, to, to extend a theme that we've discussed before, our politics is fragmenting and that fragmentation has been, has been obscured by our traditions of compulsory and preferential voting, but even that may not be able to hold it all together now. And so the reason I suspect we're in for an era of minority governments after this election is that we're becoming Europe. Like, finally, those buffers that are built into the system have run out of buffering potential. And a government now has been elected with its lowest ever primary vote. That's just what's happened, Mm. right? And that's... It would be one thing if it was like, wow, what an unusual election, but it's not. That's the expression of a trend that has been baked in for a long time. And the point that we've made in previous shows, uh, on which I know we agree, is that that's because there are, there are no majorities in Australia anymore, and mm. indeed in most democracies, it seems. The only majorities that can be cobbled together are majorities of dissent. Yes, that's right. And when once the majority of dissent wins power in some way, it has to immediately fall apart because then there's a new majority of dissent against that new established power structure. Now, I might be proven completely wrong by a Labor government that proved spectacularly successful. It managed to, to crack the code to whatever's going on. But I feel like these are structural elements that have now found uh, an expression in Australian electorate politics that they haven't before. Hmm. Interesting. Do you want to disagree with all that? Uh, I want to disagree with some of it. Okay. Particularly about this may well be the end of electoral majorities. Look, I I obviously think you're right about majorities of dissent. Um, And the thing that I keep coming back to is this wonderful observation by uh, the French political philosopher Pierre Rosin Vallon uh, that what the experience of the last three decades has shown us is that it's much easier to repeal, to gain sufficient votes to repeal an unpopular tax than it is to pass a more just one. And I think we've seen that again and again. We've seen candidates get up and topple relatively unpopular governments or unpopular incumbents, but without very much positive platform of their own and what you find very, very quickly after that. Um, And I I think to some extent we've seen this in the last decade in Australian politics. We've seen temporarily formed voter coalitions begin to buckle and crack under their own stress because there's no common goal. There's no common vision of a shared future. And we've also seen, and we certainly saw this in 2019, didn't we? Kind of platform timidity on the part of traditionally, say, left or center-left or progressive parties who really are trying to put themselves forward as an alternate government. But here's the interesting thing that I think has happened, Waleed. I've got a bit of a different read on what just took place with this federal election. I think what we've witnessed, at least since the late 1980s in Western politics, is it has become inordinately difficult for left-wing or center-left parties to advance compellingly and convincingly a platform to voters that says, on the one hand, we are responsive to the strains and the stresses and the inequities and the injustices of everyday life. We hear your pain. We are not some kind of ivory tower elite. We understand what you're going through. And we want to try to put in place a more just, a kinder, a more responsive and equitable uh, social safety net or welfare system or a series of 
a series of expressions of redistributive justice that will meet and match your needs in a way that's more uh, equitable, sustainable, and in line with our better, our best traditions. Um, usually there's some kind of appeal at this point to the decades following the Second World War. What they've been incapable of doing, though, is holding that together, a kind of a, a nicer social democratic face, with the promise that we're not going to rack up extraordinary amounts of debt. We're not going to be fiscal mismanagers. We're not going to suddenly give ground to all of these uh, socialist progressive issues that would see our borders weakened or immigration policies relaxed or that will do away with all the things, the aspects of social and our common and national life uh, that we value most. We're going to be... Did you notice how prominently Anthony Albanese on his victory speech spoke about Australia as the greatest country in the world? Absolutely. It's fascinating, it, wasn't it? It was. Like it, marking out that national... Yes. ...patriotic terrain, which whatever you think the left is, I have a problem with the term, but... Yeah, I know. It has seeded. Yes. For so long, yeah. In other words, what left or centre-left parties or progressive parties have not been able to do for at least the last 30 years is to say, at the one hand, we're going to be kinder and more responsive than the incumbent, and we will be faithful and responsible stewards of the, uh, of the purse strings. And as a result... So many conservative incumbents have been remarkably successful in painting whoever the uh, left or center-left alternative is as being a threat to everything that we hold dear or a threat to fiscal responsibility. And the thing that I, uh, you know, again, it's been one of those really salutary lessons, I think, is the success that both Barack Obama and Kevin Rudd had in positioning themselves as the rightful heirs of everything that was best in the traditions of their incumbents. Not to say that we are their natural successors, but everything that you liked in, say, republicanism is going to continue on under Obama, but in a manner that is far more responsive, that is far more equitable, and far more socially compassionate. And Kevin Rudd, remember, positioned himself overtly as a fiscal conservative who was the natural heir of John Howard. So I think we underestimate the lesson of the last three decades is that any center-left or progressive party that thinks it can offer a radical alternative to the conservative incumbent and get the public's trust or approbation in doing so, they've been repeatedly disappointed because the series of questions will immediately be rolled out. Who do you trust to defend our borders? Who do you trust with the economy? Who do you trust to defend our national way of life? It seems to me, Waleed, that the lesson of the 2019 federal election hung heavy over at Labor's 2022 campaign. I wouldn't say that Bill Shorten's platform was the most radical. It wasn't a red socialist platform, but it was successfully portrayed that way. There may well have been a little bit of overreach, especially when it comes to certain taxes upon death. Uh, certainly with some of the rhetoric surrounding uh, negative gearing. But I think for the most part, there was nothing overly radical in what Bill Shorten took to the electorate. But it was it, an overtly redistributive agenda, though. Yes, yes, it was. But as you would expect, a card-carrying, union-backed labor opposition to put forward. I mean, there, there was something... There was something honest about it. No, I'll, just, I'll just put it that way. So even a relatively unpopular incumbent could then cast labor as too great a threat. 
So yeah, except I don't think Scott Morrison was an unpopular incumbent. He wasn't popular, though. What well, he, he was, was... He was unknown. What, which, yes. Which allowed him to run a presidential campaign against Bill Shorten, yeah, who was very known. Right. I think yeah. that's right. So it seems to me that what happened with this particular election is that Labor did the bare minimum that it had to do in order to position itself as as little a threat as humanly possible for the electorate. In other words, it was never going to gain a huge number of votes, but it was going to be a safe receptacle for all of those voters who simply had enough of the coalition. So I think the first lesson of this federal election is that it was the coalition that lost. I'm not even sure we can say completely that Labour won, but we can certainly say that the coalition lost for a number of reasons. And a large number of those reasons, I think, have to do with some very specific circumstances that afflicted, that defined our national life over the last three years. And I would put them, I would name them specifically as our experience of climate devastation, especially in the form of fires and most recently floods. I would say that what we described last year as this really intensified Australian Me Too moment that defined in so many respects the first six months of last year uh, and the, for the most part, the inept way that the federal government responded, at least initially, and then the half-hearted way that I think in many respects it responded over a longer period of time. I would say that the overwhelming sense of sort of gender uh, inequality and disparity, I think the rhetoric concerning China has also been really, really defining over yeah, the last... Yeah, like the Chinese-Australian vote swung. Absolutely. Uh, I also think, well, I mean, this is a little bit sort of stranger, but I think this has been one of the other really defining features of the last three years, especially under pa- pandemic conditions. Politics has become local in a way that it never was before. Yeah. Which meant that the federal government did not get the credit for our pandemic response. The states did. And it also meant that in many seats, it was local issues and the credibility or not of local members that was far more definitive, that was far more persuasive for voters than, say, national issues. And I think the final thing, the final thing, Waleed, is that many of the things that we've kind of regarded as, or that many of the, of the politicians have told us, are these big cultural issues or issues for people on social media or issues that inner city elites are more concerned about than uh, sort of everyday quiet Australians who are more concerned about mortgage stress and how to pay their grocery bill. Many of these issues, and again, we could think of climate change, we could think of LGBTIQ plus uh, rights and equality, we could think of gender disparities and inequality, we could think of the First Nations voice to Parliament, these things that have been often portrayed or cast as, if you like, boutique issues or issues that don't really concern the majority and therefore things that the government doesn't have to uh, waste or expend a degree of electoral capital on. These have been the things that so corroded the standing that the coalition had in so many of its safe seats, especially in the inner city in Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth. Uh, It was that corrosive effect that meant that any kind of residual goodwill or any tendency to revert to the coalition as a safe pair of hands, okay, they might not give us everything we want, but at least we can trust them with dot, dot, dot. That kind of erosion of trust meant 
that the votes had to go somewhere for people who were fearful of an alternative, and they went to labor. But the more aspirational votes, the votes of people who really do, who the seismic events of the last three years, where they really had to go someplace that mattered, where that voice would be counted, where the concerns would be registered in our electoral system, they had to go someplace else. And I think what's extraordinary here in Brisbane, where I'm recording, is that so many of those votes went from the coalition, leapfrogged Labour, and went directly to the Greens. Yeah, but I think what that analysis overlooks is that that's that's a post-materialist vote. Yes, that's right. That's right. Right? So you can say these aren't, you know, this is proven that these things aren't niche issues that appeal to just, you know, the elite. But actually it was the elite that did this. Mm, mm, That's right. So to the extent that those issues did swing the election, they only swung the election because they swung elites, right? I'm not convinced, I'm open to being convinced, by the way, but I'm not yet convinced that the issues that you cite are the big shifters in Australian politics among those who still vote with material concerns. Oh, no, I think you're right. Yeah. But but what I'm saying, Waleed, is that there was nothing about what Labor promised or nothing about what Labor ruled out that so dissuaded those voters that those voters weren't prepared to vote for Labor. Well, except they didn't vote Labor. I mean, there's one, one well, Griffith went to the Greens from Labor. In Melbourne, it was... Here I'm talking about outside of, say, the Green or Teal seats. I mean, that Labor simply did not lose much of its primary vote. It lost a little bit, but it simply did not lose much of its primary vote. No, but it did lose its primary vote in those suburban seats. Yes, it did, but not, but not outside. In other words, they were a soft target. They were an as non-scary, non-divisive a political alternative as possible, whereas those who really wanted certain moral, environmental, cultural concerns to be registered, to be given full voice within our political system, they then went to the independents and to the Greens. So what I, what I think, Waleed, is that what your analysis, I think, underestimates is just how much it takes over the course of the last three decades in particular for a government to change hands from conservative incumbents to a left or center-left alternative. Labor did what it had to do in order not to be fearful, in order not to be scary. And the result that, uh, which, which meant that it had to put forward, I wouldn't exactly say a small target, but it had to be non-divisive. I'll just put it that way. It needed to put itself forward as something that could not be the object of a scare campaign. That is, it couldn't be aligned with what we traditionally think of as left-wing politics. That's exactly right. Now, in other words, I do think in many respects we are left then with, I don't know quite else how to put this, the best of all worlds. Uh, As we record this, Labour has not quite reached 76 seats in the House of Representatives, but I think it's a pretty fair bet that it's going to. So it will have a majority in the parliament, most likely, but a razor-thin one, which means it's going to have to negotiate. And it also means that it's going to be subject to pressures from and a degree of enticement by the very, very large crossbench that's going to sit in the parliament and 
the Green representatives that will sit. And especially in the Senate. And especially in the Senate. Now, that means that in some respects, labor can be given the cover of a responsible opposition that has made its way into government. We're not suddenly going to be irresponsible with the Treasury. And I would say, well, it hasn't hurt their cause at all that what the coalition has then bequeathed to labor is a very, very, very large national debt. So it's not as though that that can be used as a as a particular scare campaign. Um, but it also means that those politicians, those representatives who, who do sit in the House, it means that they can draw labor if labor wants to be drawn on issues of, if you like, greater aspirational concern, so things that would be more in the purview of sort of left and progressive parties. Mm. And if labor does that, I don't see any reason why we couldn't see in three years' time, and if, and if it proves itself competent in doing so, I don't see any reason why in three years' time we couldn't see a rather dramatic reversion back to kind of good old-fashioned okay. majoritarianism. Yeah. And what do you think happens to the Greens in that scenario? I don't see any circumstance in which there could be a coalition between them. Any? No, I just What don't. about the circumstance that they go from, what, three seats now perhaps to five in three years to eight in the three years after that. I mean, it becomes inevitable, right, at that point? I just, I just don't think so. I simply don't Wh- think which so. Which bit don't you think is right, that they'll win those seats or that that would mean there's a coalition? I think the Green Party will certainly continue to win those seats. I think they're become, going to become an ever more powerful, potent force in the House of Representatives Labor's calculation all along, certainly in the post-Gillard years, has been that the number of voters that they would lose through forming that kind of coalition would almost eclipse the number that they would gain through any kind of yeah, coalition. Yeah, but that was Greens. before we're talking about eight seats to the Greens. Yeah. I mean, um, they can't form government without that, right? No, no. But if, for instance, Labor's experience in the what used to be known as the coal seats of, say, Hunter and Flynn, I mean, there was a swing to them in the coal seats. True, um, but coming off uh, whacking. Of course there was. Of course there was. But I don't see any future for Labour that simply plants its flag in the inner city. There is going to be a dramatic reconceptualization of work, the meaning of work, the dignity of work, the meaning of employment and full employment in the coming years. Labour, I think, will have to position itself no longer simply as the party of the progressives and of the elites, it's going to have to reinvigorate, I think, its traditional appeal to the working classes, uh, even if the power, the pull, the force, the influence of the unions uh, probably can't be recovered. Mm, That working class that continues to be at least attracted to the coalition. Yes, that's right. Even in defeat. That's right. Um, This is The Minefield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you may be doing right now, but it exists as a podcast, so you can listen at your convenience on the ABC Listen app, or also you can subscribe to The Minefield wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Our guest is one of our favorites. I'm not going to be shy in saying that. All the shows that we've had her on, she's been stellar. And we wanted to talk about a really, really difficult, complex topic. We thought, hey, why not? 
Emma Shortis is a lecturer in the Social and Global Studies Center at RMIT University. She's a spectacular political historian, theorist. Emma, it's wonderful to have you back on the minefield. What an introduction. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, well, you know, I want to be sure that you're willing to come back. <laughs> Got to live up to it now, Emma. That's right. Yeah, I know, it. pressure's on. So look, before we get into some of the deeper meanings of this election, and you may want to agree or disagree with much of anything that Walid and I just said, we, I, I think we do have slightly different, but I think substantially different takes on what it is mm. that just happened. Let's, let's begin with the coalition. Because if we say, and you may or may not disagree with this, the fundamental lesson of the 2022 federal, Australian federal election is that the coalition lost. I think it's worth suggesting that they lost in no small part because they offended, just to go back to this French political philosopher, Pierre Rosanvalon, what he described as the three cardinal rules of modern representative politics, which is the centrality of truthfulness, of integrity or transparency, and I, something we haven't discussed is the coalition's refusal to enact a federal anti-corruption commission. But also, well, that, that's not quite right. It's more that they refused to enact one that most people saw as serious. Yes, sorry. That's, that's right, Willie. Thank you. But also a failure of responsiveness. This is the thing that Pierre Roosevelt has kept returning to over the last decade, that politicians and politics soon loses touch with people when it becomes visibly responsive to what they say are their fundamental values. And I just wonder with things like the First Nations voice to parliament, with gender equality, with LGBTIQ rights and equality, on all of these fronts, whether it became culpably, in the minds of many voters, culpably unresponsive to what many voters were saying they in fact care about. I, th I think it did. You know, I think I would broadly agree with the premise of what you're saying, Scott, particularly around responsiveness, because I think, you know, it's, it's materially obvious that the coalition in particular was completely unresponsive to concerns about climate change in particular, mm. and that has really fundamentally hurt them. I think what's what's really interesting with the kind of premise that you set there is is to kind of treat Australia as an outlying case study in Western democracies, because part of that responsiveness question in Australia is very different precisely because we have compulsory voting. And so that failure of responsiveness in, you know, in a place like the United States, exactly what you were saying about truthfulness has a very different effect because, at least partly, I think, of the lack of compulsory voting. And so that's why Australia is this really particularly interesting case study and I think, you know, while it is right as well in that this is potentially at least, like I'm going to be a historian and, and hedge and say potentially this is a seismic shift in Australian politics, in the landscape of Australian politics. But I think I'd kind of maybe disagree a little bit on just how it is and that question of the role of like what we might, might call the knowledge class in Australian politics, but also in that question of post-materialism that Wally brought up, because I, I think I would kind of fundamentally disagree with that argument in that the results in Queensland in particular around the Greens votes in Brisbane is I don't think is post-materialist at all. I think it's deeply materialist in that climate change is a material issue and, and not having your house underwater is a material concern that the coalition, once again, failed utterly 
to respond to and not not just to respond to but i think treated those concerns with contempt yeah but sorry but, can i just mention one other yeah. thing though one of the really i mean there have been so many things that have been peculiar about the last three years. And I do think that one of the effects of the pandemic has been to hyper-localize Australian politics in a way that it, it, just, it just hasn't been for a long, long time. Mm. And I mean, particularly in the seat of Griffith, the fact that that's gone from Labour to the Greens, one of the decisive issues there, it wasn't about the suburb, which is along the banks of the Brisbane River. It wasn't just about houses going under. One of the decisive issues there was the Greens were the only one, oh, the only party who wanted to address the problem of, of aircraft noise, of the flight path that goes directly over those suburbs. So I, I think you're right. I think there were materialist concerns, but they might not even have been as highfalutin or highbrow as something like climate change. It could even simply have been, if you like, ambient uh, for that particular seat. Like amenity, that kind yes, of thing. Yes, amenity. Thank but, you. Okay, so can I, uh, let me explain why I think this is all, or that what we've discussed here is still post-materialist. These are high-income seats. Yeah, that's true. And all of the highest-income seats in the country swung to party preferred to Labor or the Greens or an independent. All of them. They all swung anti-coalition, right? And when we talk about something as climate, like climate change as a material concern, yes, that's true in the sense that I might lose my house. That's a material concern. I mean, it's, it's perhaps more than material, actually, the idea mm. of losing your house. There's something existential about that. But here I, I go to understanding the politics of climate change in Australia hitherto, and it has been a post-materialist politics. The reason I say that is that climate change action has been, in the way that we express it in our votes, a luxury good. Wealthy electorates vote on that and less wealthy electorates, mortgage belt electorates. I mentioned the mortgage stress seats, which all swung to the coalition or overwhelmingly swung to the coalition. They're not as concerned about that or they don't vote on that. They vote on the things that are going to affect the hip pocket now. And for that reason, and th this was the brilliant insight that Tony Abbott had when he took over the reins as opposition leader and everyone pilloried him for this and he turned out to be proven correct. And that was that once climate change became framed as a potential cost, it was very, very hard to dislodge the coalition's position on it, electorally speaking. Climate change has been something you vote on when you're not the one who'll necessarily bear the costs of the action. It might be that you'll vote on it if you think you're going to bear the cost of the consequences. But even then, if those costs are in the distance, you won't vote on that issue because you have more pressing immediate costs. Now, you could argue, and I don't know, maybe you would argue this, that that all changed. The bushfires changed it, the floods changed it, and so on. But the fact that the swings that we're talking about as being decisive against the coalition remain those high-income seats makes me suspect that this is a post-materialist response. The exception to that is in parts of Queensland, not even the inner city, but other parts of Queensland. But there, I think we have to take that with a grain of salt because that you were talking about the coalition having maxed out its two-party preferred vote, really, mm -hmm. in 2019. So it was always going to have to come off a little bit. And also in 2019, on primaries, there was a swing against the coalition anyway. It's just that it went to One Nation and Palmer and came back to them that sort of a way. Have I at all convinced you in my post-materialist analysis of that particular part of the election? <laughs> Look, I think a little bit. I think partly maybe what we need to kind of add to nuance this conversation about the way climate is framed, particularly in Australia, is, of course, the role of the media 
I think, in in the way that climate change is framed as a material issue or not as a material issue. I suppose what I think is the potential of what has happened is that that is shifting that descript. I think that quite accurate description of climate politics in the recent history of this country that you gave, Waleed. I think potentially, at least, that is shifting. And and for me, you know, places to watch really closely will, of course, be places like Hunter, which you know the Labor Party has taken back after some pretty dire politics discussion around climate in that seat in particular. And for me, I think it will be really interesting to watch, as you were kind of saying earlier, Scott, whether the Labor Party kind of leans into that progressive politics and the, I suppose the kind of cover that Greens and this climate concerned crossbench gives to continue that kind of progressive shift for climate politics in seats like Hunter, in those lower income seats to make climate or to, to change the narrative around climate to that genuinely material concern that is deeply connected, I think, to bushfire and flood and kind of going back to bushfire in Australia and the kind of visions coming out of places like, you know, Gippsland and Mallacoota, where it's very much not an issue of the kind of knowledge class or just people in wealthy inner city seats. I do think that narrative is shifting. And I think we also need to be careful about kind of treating voting as the single, you know, simplistic indicator of what people think about particular issues. Mm. You know, I think we need kind of a more fine grand analysis of how people perceive these issues and, and their relation to each other. And some of that comes from preferential voting. But it's also, I think, really interesting to kind of contrast those, you know, necessarily local perceptions of climate change with broader studies of Australians, which show that a vast majority want more climate action. And that if you kind of zoom out and look at this electoral result, that lines up pretty closely. Yeah, but Australians have been saying that in surveys for more than a decade, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, they have. And so is, you know, so is most of the rest of the world. And I think that that is, again, kind of speaks to, I guess, a broader conversation, broader questions about participatory democracy, because so many studies you see, particularly of of young people, you know, you know, and I'm sure you've discussed this before, will kind of argue that young people are particularly disillusioned with democracy and that that's deeply connected to climate. And often the assumption is that democracy is kind of unable, structurally unable to respond to climate change and therefore people are drifting, young people in particular, are drifting away from climate. And as a result, I guess, kind of drawn to autocracy. But I think that's, again, really overly simplistic Mm. because what you will see is that actually young people and not drifting away from democracy. They're disappointed in it. But but what they want actually is more democracy. They want deeper and more responsive democracy. So that's no doubt true. And I don't mean that people, when they say they are concerned about climate, are being disingenuous about that. I just mean that they don't vote on it. So if for 10 years we've been telling pollsters this, or for longer than that, and then for more than 10 years, or at least the last 10 we've been voting in the opposite direction when climate policies are put in front of us Mm. because either we're frightened of the cost of the climate policy or we just find other things to prioritise, then I think that that's what makes me reluctant to say, well, this has opened up a completely brand new era of climate politics now. I mean, imagine the scenario, and it may have, by the way, but I'm just reluctant to to leap to that conclusion at this point. Imagine the scenario where... A Labor government in a, with a very slim majority, but with a massive Greens contingent in the Senate, decides that it's going to get 
far more ambitious and assertive with its climate policy. And we start seeing, you know, net zero by 2030, Mm -hmm. things passed and so on and so forth. Do you see, and then a campaign run against that with all the vigour that we've seen in the past from the coalition? What do you think happens? That's what I. That's what I don't think will happen, though. Will lead. No, but imagine it does. Yeah. But what what <laughs> Look, happens? I, I, I think the more likely scenario is not that the Labor Party will go. Will say, you know, net zero by twenty thirty is so much that that they would lean into what we were talking about before into a more localized politics. So one of the parts of the Labor policy, Labor Party policy platform is a national, I think it's called a national transition authority. And and what that, yeah. as, I, as I understand it, is doing is looking at transitioning, you know, different communities that rely on different aspects of fossil fuels, you know, the most obvious ones being those kind of coal communities that have relied on coal mining and coal power to places implement like policies. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Policies in, in those places around transition, around supporting worker transition, community an economic transition into a, you know, what I assume the Labor Party would hope is a better life. That's what Albanese has spoken about. And so I think that is potentially the way that climate policy will evolve through deep, nuanced, complicated support for that kind of transition rather than those more esoteric, open to very effective attack policies like, you know, that kind of umbrella net zero by 2030, I think it will be much more fine-grained than that. Mm. And in that, I think, lies the way, at least potentially, to much more enduring success when it comes to, to actual climate action. Yeah. No, that, that does seem a plausible account. Yeah, I'll definitely concede that. Um, that voice, <laughs> by the way, belongs to Emma Shortis, a lecturer in the Social and Global Studies Centre at RMIT University. Uh, Will Ed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. You're listening to The Minefield. Emma, I think you've raised something really interesting about different forms or different expressions of politics, especially within Western democracies. Um, I often hear, and Waleed, we discussed this when we were with Lisa Hill at the Wom Adelaide Festival earlier this year, when we discussed lowering the voting age. And you often hear people say, how can you not want to give the vote to young people when they're already so political? And the thing I keep wanting to come back with is, well, there's politics and there's politics. I mean, representative politics is the stuff of compromise. It is the stuff of putting oneself when one's not the incumbent forward as a non-threatening alternative. It is about finding, if not the best, then maybe the next best or at least the least worst. So I think there are all things about compromise that don't sit really well with the uncompromising moral claims or moral demands of many young people who may themselves be politically active or politically engaged, but but don't really buy into representative politics as something that's a a worthy means or mechanism by which they can express or uh, actuate uh, their wills, their particular democratic desires. Um, It just strikes me, though, that one of the things that this election did, which is what I find, again, I, I find it endlessly fascinating. This election, it seems to me, responded to two enormous dynamics. One is the weight of incumbency especially when the incumbent is a conservative government. I just don't think that can be ignored. I think nothing about the history of the last three decades teaches us that we could ignore the weight of conservative incumbency. Um, It may well reflect 
I mean, it really may well reflect that representative politics in Western democracies is becoming ever more centrist and center-right in its orientations. I think we can see that in the U.S. I think we can see that in France. I think we can see that in, in the U.K. But at the same time, the political desires, the expressed wishes of many politically active young people, it can't be responded to in the same way by representative politics, precisely because that demand is so uncompromising. And representative politics is the stuff of compromise. So it seems to me that we're left with this remarkable situation where labor positioned itself as an inoffensive receptacle for all of those voters that couldn't bring themselves to vote for the coalition and didn't feel as though it could leap all the way to teal independence or to the greens. And at the same time, young voters found a worthy receptacle, a worthy register within which they could express their demands, their desires, their wishes for change that normally representative politics simply cannot be responsive to. And so it, it just strikes me that we may well see, within a compulsory voting system, no less, we may well see a way of bridging this divide between the political demands of non-representative politics, in other words, the demands of, say, a democratic culture for action on climate change, action on gender equality, indigenous reconciliation, First Nations voice to parliament. At the same time, we're seeing that married with the natural reticence that many voters might have to move away from a conservative or, say, a right or center-right government. This seems to me almost a remarkable, virtuosic way of squaring a circle. By the way, I'm intrigued that you say Labor presented as the option of people who weren't prepared to go all the way to the teals. Surely it was the other way around. Surely mm. the Teals were the option if you weren't prepared to go all the way to Labor or the Greens. I mean, the, the Teals were really representing an embodiment of classical liberalism, really, weren't they? Oh, yes, yes. They're, You're precisely right. I guess what I, was trying to, what I was trying to register at that point was that the Teals only stood for very, very, very particular seats with very particular... Liberal seats, yeah. uh, for, for liberal seats, but also with a very particular socioeconomic profile. Yes, wealthy ones. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> Classic liberal heartland sort of seats, yeah. To, to recapture the part of the party that they were arguing and apparently persuasively has disappeared. That's, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to intervene to pick up that point. Although well, I, I think it's just an important part of the yeah. overall map of what's happened. But Emma, what do you, what do you think of Scott's account of virtuosity? Sure, yeah, there's a, <laughs> there's a lot going on there. Look, I think what I would kind of pick out of that, I suppose, if, I, if I'm being selective, is this idea that representative democracy is unable to respond to certain concerns of certain parts of the electorate, you know, the most obvious one being climate change. And I'm, I'm not actually sure that there is any reason that representative democracy can't respond to those demands, you know, even if we think, even if we want to frame them as extreme or uncompromising, though I would kind of take issue with a desire for a survivable planet being being uncompromising or unreasonable. I think what we need to do is be kind of careful about our definitions, because I don't think that's necessarily an inability of democracy to respond to those demands so much as a, an inability of a dominant political culture that is kind of focused on centrism or liberalism, kind of however we want to define it, which 
tends to at least sometimes fetish, almost fetishize process over outcomes. So it's kind of based on this understanding of politics as a kind of objective contest of ideas in which it's always possible to come to a kind of reasonable, rational compromise in which everybody is satisfied. And that is true, you know, in some areas of policy, like if we're talking about tax codes or, I don't know, childcare policy or, um, you know, different kind of economic policies. But it's not, it isn't possible and doesn't apply to other areas of politics, namely climate. Scott mentioned a First Nations voice to Parliament. You know, how do you come to a kind of tolerable or reasonable centrist solution or accommodation with white supremacists, right? You can't. And centrism and a liberal understanding of democratic politics has just utterly failed, I think, to draw lines around issues in in which that approach is just not appropriate. And so I think that's where the kind of disillusionment with politics comes from. You know, it's not it's not a failure necessarily of democracy or democratic institutions. It's a failure of a dominant liberal political culture, which isn't interested in accommodating those demands because it's not in its material or cultural interests to do so. Can I just make one very quick response, Emma? I think that the First Nations voice to parliament is precisely such a compromise. Mm, It is precisely the kind of accommodation that representative politics is capable of. And that's what makes its refusal. And that's what makes Malcolm Mm. Turnbull's threat to prosecute an election campaign against a First Nations voice to parliament so illiberal and in many respects reprehensible. What I mean by uncompromising demands when it comes to climate change, a climate change policy has to take into account so many different factors so many different competing demands and graduated effects on different aspects of society. It means that by its very definition, the whole nature of representative responsibility means that those who are agitating for the most quote-unquote necessary forms of climate action will never be given what they want, will never be given everything that they want because of so many competing interests and calculations mm-hmm. that the whole defin- the whole nature of political responsibility requires. So uh, when I said uncompromised, and I wasn't meaning extreme or rabid or irrational Mm -hmm. or anything like that, it's just that representative politics can't give, say, Extinction Rebellion what it wants. It just can't. Yeah, I I think that's true. But I think there's there's an important difference there in that often those organizations and Extinction Rebellions are kind of obvious ones to target, are painted as uncompromising or unwilling to even recognise that. And I, I think that's slightly unfair. You know, I think that those organisations know, you know, they're well, they do understand politics. They're well aware that they're not going to necessarily get all of their demands. But that apparent fact is often used to just completely dismiss those demands out of hand. And, and that, again, is not a failure of democracy. I think that's a failure of a liberal political culture. Where, what I do think is really interesting is if we go back to the, the question of independence and young people, is that in fact in some of those independent campaigns, um, and I'm thinking in particular of Indi and Helen Haynes' mm. campaign there, which builds on Kathy McGowan's Voices of Campaign, young people are at the centre of those yeah. campaigns and they were at the centre as well of, of Zoe Daniels' campaign, which explicitly drew inspiration from from the Indi campaign. And I think young people are drawn to that kind of, you know, 
it is representative politics, of course, but it's also a, a kind of it's much bigger than that. You know, it's it's a participation, an ongoing participation in civic life that doesn't just start and end with elections. You know, in India, that's been going on for for a number of years, mm. and so I think that the potential for for a shift in Australian politics there. And for a change, a dramatic change in the way that we talk about not just climate change, but kind of participatory democracy more broadly is is actually really exciting. Mm. Yeah, that's a welcome development. Yeah, but it absolutely. does imply what I was saying before, doesn't it? That is fragmentation. But how could there not be fragmentation given the experience is of the it, last three years? That's, that's, I guess, my point. Yeah, but my point and, is it's and not I don't about think the it's last necessarily bad. Mm. Oh, you can have your like, own view about whether it it's good thing? or bad. Yeah. That's a separate point. My point, though, is... It's a politics of fragmentation. Hmm. And, yeah, and the reason I, I say it's not about the last three years is this has been observable now for at least a decade, probably longer. Look, uh, yeah, I think that's true. But I think, you know, I don't think we, maybe I'm being too optimistic, but I don't think we need to be as worried about fragmentation as, say, people in the United States do. And and the hopeful side of me thinks that, you know, maybe these crossbenchers will actually kind of signal more of a, maybe not a coming together, but a, a less antagonistic fragmentation mm, of politics. Mm, absolutely right. Yeah. But yeah that, might demand it. Because well, yeah. if, if you know that henceforth you will only ever govern in majority by making certain compromises with crossbenchers, then that's got to change the way you approach politics, I yeah. guess. Pretty dramatically. We'll find out. Why don't we play this in 10 years, <laughs> just on the radio? <laughs> see Time capsule. Yeah. God, I have a feeling this conversation won't age well. Uh, Emma, thank you for <laughs> throwing yourself on, on the chopping block like that. Along with us, Emma Shortis is lecturer in the Social and Global Studies Centre at RMIT University. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, we're at an end. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.